So we continue our study in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Our theme this year is closer, drawing closer to the Lord and drawing closer to one another. And uh, the church in Corinth was a church that really needed to draw closer to one another as well as to draw closer to the Lord. And so we're looking at this church and learning what it means to be a people who really live in communion with each other and with the Lord. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This morning we'll be looking at verses 18 through chapter 2, verse 5. I don't know if uh, you enjoy kung fu movies like I do. Uh, Especially as a kid, I used to love Bruce Lee and watching kung fu theater on Saturdays. Uh, but, But even if you're not really into kung fu, it's possible that there's at least one kung fu movie you've seen. Uh, It was put out in the year 2000. It was called Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And uh, and you may have known it because it was kind of a kung fu movie that went mainstream all over America. It won uh, four Academy Awards, three Golden Globe Awards for a film with subtitles, a foreign language film, which is pretty remarkable. And uh, in this story, the main character is is a kung fu warrior named Limu Bai, who is a master of Wudan Kung Fu, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. And uh, Li Mu Bai is, he's basically like the greatest warrior in China. Greatest warrior in China. He can beat anybody. And uh, Li Mu Bai is not only the greatest Kung Fu warrior in China, but he has this sword called, I think it's like the Jade Destiny Sword, but it's, he's the, it's the most powerful sword in China. So he's like the, the best fighter with the best awesome sword there is. And played opposite him is another Kung Fu warrior uh, who also knows Wudan Kung Fu, and it's a young woman named Jen. And Jen uh, has learned Kung Fu like him, but she learned it the wrong way. She, she didn't study under a master like you're supposed to do. She studied uh, on her own. She got hold of a stolen Wudan Kung Fu manual and taught herself. Not only that, but she also, early on in the movie, steals Li Mu Bai's super magic awesome sword for herself. So as you can imagine, there's eventually a confrontation between these two, and uh, she's there, caught red-handed by Limu Bai, and she's trying to, you know, ready to, to get whipped in, in this fight, so she pulls out the magic sword, and he just says to her, I just want to train you. I want to teach you the right way. I, w- I want to teach you the true path. And she wants nothing to do with it, because that's who she is. She's a rebel. She does it on her own. Stolen kung fu, stolen sword. And so a, a fight breaks out between them, a sword fight. And, and you kind of wonder, like, how's this going to go? Because on the one hand, there's Li Mubai, who's the greatest kung fu warrior in China. On the other hand, there's Jen, and she's pretty good, not as good as him, but she does have the awesome magic sword. So you think, huh, this could go either way. I wonder how this fight will turn out. Turns out, no contest. Li Mubai is way better totally beats her. In fact, at the end of the fight, she just has to run away. She flees for her life. And, and you think, and, and it's so amazing is the reason you know Li Mubai is so good, he's such, so skilled and so wise and powerful at Kung Fu, is that she's fighting with the magic sword and he takes her on and the weapon he uses in the sword fight is one of these. He uses a stick. He picks a stick up off the ground and he starts, you know, fencing with it. And she, she's totally defeated. She can't even fight him. And you think, wow, if he can beat her with a stick, a weak, useless, the last thing you would ever think of as a martial art weapon. A, you know, maybe you might smack your kid with it. But that's, I mean, what else would you do? 
not that I would, but others, uh, you know, what would you, you know, this is an awesome fighter. He can win a duel with just a stick, with a weak, foolish tool, and he shows how great he is. This morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we are going to read about an epic duel between two combatants. But this is not a movie, this is real life. This is the most epic battle that has been going on in the world, and it's still going on, and it's all around us. This battle is raging. On the one hand, you have the world. The world. And on the other hand, you have God. And God and the world have been going at it in this contest. The world has its skill and its wisdom, And it's a stolen skill and a stolen wisdom that refuses to submit to the master. And on the other hand, you have God. And God and his skill and his wisdom. And and like in the movie, it's really no contest. God is going to win. But God is demonstrating today in our world right now, God is demonstrating his awesome wisdom and battle prowess and glory because he is fighting against the world with a stick. And it's called the cross of Jesus Christ. A weak, powerless, foolish weapon against the world. But it is the cross of Jesus Christ that God is using. Look at our text. Let me read verses, start off just by reading verses 18 to 21. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So on the one hand, you have the world, the wise men, the scholars, the philosophers, the wisdom of the world is out there. And you are all very familiar with the wisdom of the world. You may not have ever called it that or thought of it that way, but it's all around us. You know, it's when you're in the grocery store checkout aisle, And there's the magazines, five tips to stress-free living and four tips to better love life. And, you know, this is how to manage your money. And and, and the world's wisdom is coming at us through uh, morning talk shows and through political punditry and and from teachers in school. And it comes through blogs and the movies we watch and the songs we listen to. It's just, it's all around us. You know, to quote another movie, it's like the Matrix. It's everywhere and nowhere, and the world's wisdom is coming at us. And so we think, well, you know, I want to protect myself from the, the world. I want to shield my kids from it. That's kind of like saying I want to, I want to shield the fish from the water. It's, it's everywhere, the world's wisdom. It's constant, telling us this is how you be happy. This is how you have a good life. This is how you live. This is how you do relationships. This is how you do money. This is what life is about, that message that the world is sending to us all the time. And at the heart of worldly wisdom, the thing that makes worldly wisdom worldly and opposed to God is the fact that worldly wisdom seeks to find the meaning of life without reference to God. 
It tries to find the meaning of life without looking to God on God's terms. Like uh, Jen, refusing to submit to the training of the master. I will train myself. I will teach myself. I'll steal it for myself and develop my own kung fu. That, that, that sort of idea. You know, look at the text. Verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. That's the essence of worldly wisdom. It doesn't know God. It refuses to know God on God's terms. It's trying to live life, but it does it without God and without knowing God, and it can't know God. That's the, the background. If you go back up to verse 19, here's this quotation from Isaiah, verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. That's taken out of that passage Seth read for us. Was it the one Seth read a little, just a little earlier in the service, Isaiah 29. And in Isaiah 29, if you go back in that passage, if you remember what Seth was reading, one of the main thrusts of that passage is, is that the world, and especially in this case the Israelites in Isaiah, were refusing to know God on his terms. So you don't have to turn to Isaiah 29 if, if you don't want to, but let me just read you a few lines from Isaiah 29 just to remind you. These people come near to me with their mouth, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up of rules taught by men. You know, to have worldly wisdom, you don't have to be a card-carrying atheist. You can sit in a church and have worldly wisdom. All you have to do with worldly wisdom is do it on your own terms. Yeah, you know, I, I believe certain things, but it's, it's doctrine taught by men. It's, it's people-manufactured religion. That, that's worldly wisdom. Or if you look further in that passage, uh, verse 15 Isaiah says, Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who think that in, they work in darkness, and they think, Who will see us? Who will know? God doesn't know. God doesn't care. God doesn't see. It doesn't matter what you do. Verse 16, You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed, us, say to him who formed it, God, he did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, he knows nothing? That's worldly wisdom. You don't need God. You don't need his advice. Who knows if he's even really there. Even if he is there, he obviously isn't tuned in. doesn't really matter. Do it yourself. Steal the kung fu. Make it up. It's up to you. It's wisdom without reference to God. And God is going to destroy that wisdom. That's what Paul wants to drive home here. Again, verse 19. I will, going back, I'm in 1 Corinthians now again. Verse 19. I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. God is bringing in this battle his judgment against the world because at its heart, worldly wisdom is idolatrous. At its heart, worldly wisdom denies the glory of God and opposes God's greatness by saying we don't need God. Worldly wisdom began in the Garden of Eden when the serpent said to Eve, you too can be like God if you just don't obey God and do it your own way. That's the world's wisdom. And God's going to destroy the world's wisdom. Now, push pause here for a second. Why is Paul talking about all this? It's 1 Corinthians. Paul just seems to launch on this world's wisdom, God's wisdom kick. What, what? Why is he talking about this? Remember where we are in 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians, I, as we studied last Sunday, if you were here, 
is a, a letter written to a church with a lot of fights in it. All the people are fighting with each other, right? Go back to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, verse 11. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One uh, of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. So it was a fighting, divided church. You jump to chapter 3, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, and, and there's, he's still fighting. Verse 3 of chapter 3. You're still worldly, he says. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one of you says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? So the problem in Corinth seems to be all this fighting between people. So why does Paul suddenly stop talking about the fighting for a minute and kind of go on this rabbit trail about wisdom and the world's wisdom and God's wisdom? What's the point of this? Here's the point. The Corinthians are operating out of worldly wisdom. That's the whole point. That's why Paul drops into this whole topic here. So, So think about it in like medical terms. If you go to the doctor, you don't just want him to treat the symptoms. You want him to treat the disease. The symptom in Corinth was people were fighting. The disease was they were thinking like worldly people. They were thinking like Corinthians. They were not thinking like Christians. And so Paul's like, look, okay, you guys got fighting going on, but you got a deeper problem. Let's go deeper. Let's go one level lower. The problem isn't that you're fighting and having problems with each other. The real problem is you're thinking according to worldly wisdom, and that's bad because God is going to destroy worldly wisdom. (laughs) You guys are on the wrong side of this duel. Get over on the right side. Start thinking the way and evaluating each other the way that you should as Christians because God is going to destroy the world's wisdom and he's going to do it with something foolish. He's he's going to use this twig that we talked about to destroy the world's wisdom and that twig is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's foolish. And maybe that sounds funny to call the cross foolish. Sort of weird for a pastor to say the cross is foolish but Paul called it foolish he said it's a weak and powerless thing. And, and that sounds funny to us because we're used to thinking of the cross as an awesome thing. But remember, the cross is foolish from the world's perspective. And so therefore, God says, I'm going to use something the world has no respect for, and that's what I'm going to use to beat the world and save people. And therefore, you're going to know I'm awesome at kung fu. <laughs> that God will get glory for himself by defeating the world with a foolish tool. How is the cross foolish? Paul goes on in the rest of this passage to note three ways that the cross is foolish, that the cross is weak, that it's the wrong kind of thing you'd think of in a fight. And I just want to spend the rest of our time together quickly looking at these three ways in which the cross is foolish. And here's the first one. Number one, the cross is a foolish message. It's a foolish message foolish message. Look at verse 20, uh, 22 in 1 Corinthians 1. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. There's the message. A stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those uh, whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. God is is winning. He is 
winning people over to himself. He's coming to a world that doesn't believe in him, and he's winning worshipers out of the world through the message of Christ crucified. Think about that message, Christ crucified. That's Paul's central message. It's the central message of the gospel. You know, Paul taught a lot of different things besides Christ crucified, but if you had to summarize Paul's teaching, it was Christ crucified. That's a foolish message. Think about Paul back in his day. Go back to the historical context. It's, you know, the first century A.D. Here's Paul walking into Corinth. First place he goes, synagogue. Goes to his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. And he goes in that synagogue and he says, guess what, folks? The Messiah is here. What? Wow. Let me tell you about this Messiah. He was crucified. And people go, stumble. (laughs) What? Crucified? No, 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 no. The Messiah is supposed to be like Braveheart. You know, he's supposed to be like Superman. He's supposed to beat all the bad Romans. The Messiah doesn't get crucified. Besides, the Hebrew Scriptures say that cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. And the Messiah doesn't die on a tree. He's the blessed one, not the cursed one. This doesn't make any sense, Paul. What are you talking about? This is foolishness. So Paul leaves the synagogue, and he goes out to the Greeks and the, the agora and the marketplace, and he starts telling the Greek and the Roman people, hey, the king has come, the king of kings. Really, tell me about him. He was crucified. What? That makes no sense. In, in Greco-Roman society, you, you know, you have the bottom of the barrel. You know, every society has the bottom of the barrel. There's just certain people who are at the bottom of the barrel. To be crucified would be to actually go under the bottom of the barrel, where all the wet mold is. Like, that's how low. You can't get any lower than crucifixion. That, that's the, the dregs and the scum of the earth in Roman society. The ultimate loser is crucified. And so here's Paul saying, great news, king of kings here, crucified. What do you think? And the Greeks are going, are you joking? Is that a joke? Like, what are you talking about? It doesn't make any sense. It's a foolish message. No wonder people... Don't listen to it. I think it's a foolish message today, too. I think it's just as foolish today, maybe for different reasons. But we're going around preaching Christ. And here in the modern world, modern America, it's all, you know, Jesus, Jesus is the Christ. And people are like, okay, it's interesting. But, but why, why do you keep talking about Jesus? What about Buddha? What about Hinduism? What about, uh, you know, Scientology? What about, like, you know, yoga and walking in the woods and sending out positive energy from your mind? You know, like what? Why are you stuck on Jesus? I had a, a friend here in the church who brought another friend to the church and invited them to come, and they came for a service. And afterwards, a friend said, you know, so, so what did you think of the service? And, and this other person said, it was nice. I like, you know, I like the music. The people seemed nice. But I just didn't understand something. Well, what didn't you understand? Why were you guys talking about Jesus so much? That's all you talked about in your church. And like, yeah, that's our message is Christ, Jesus. But not just Jesus, it's Christ crucified. So it's, it's Christ who died on the cross and rose again. And again, I think that also doesn't square with, our, with the wisdom of the world today. Uh, think about it this way. You know, what is the world's wisdom today? What's the core message? And if, one way you could summarize it is, or, or one major message we hear in our culture today, let, let, me, let me sort of give it to you and see if it resonates with you or not. It kind of goes like this. You know, you need to follow your dreams. It's up to you. Figure out what happiness is for you and go for it. Think positive thoughts. 
Make your bucket list and tick off your bucket list. Do what you want to do. Don't let people put molds on you. The problem is you're letting all kinds of people define reality for you. Stop listening to people. Stop listening to the naysayers. Figure out who you are. Love yourself. Accept yourself. And just embrace what it is you want to be and let you be the master of your own life. That's the wisdom of the world today, right? And so the bad thing is anything that keeps you from being who you want to be. And so we come to the world and we say, hey, we have wisdom. It's Christ crucified. What? Yeah, yeah, because, because you, you, know, you and I are sinful people and we need someone to save us from our sins. What do you mean I'm a sinful people? I love myself. You know, and you, know, you don't understand. H- happiness in life is found in submitting to God, not in pushing away from God and defining... Like, don't you understand this whole thing about be all who you can be and and accept your dreams and do whatever you want? Like, that's the essence of sin? That's the very essence of what Satan lied to Eve about in the garden? Be your own God? Like, the more I push in that send out positive energy to fulfill my dreams, it's satanic. And it perishes. And so it totally doesn't make sense to the world. And, and we realize that, we feel that, even if you've never put it in those words, we experience that as Christians in the world kind of intuitively, which is why I think one of our temptations we always have to fight against is our temptation to change the message to make it more palatable to the world. That message just doesn't sell that easily, Christ crucified. And so we change the message. And we're tempted to kind of change Jesus a little bit and be like, well, what is it you kind of want out of life? You want happiness? Well, Jesus can help you reach happiness. What else do you want in life? You, you want better, you know, stress-free living? Well, you know, Jesus can help you with that too. Really, whatever it is that you decide is your goal, here's Jesus. He's going to help you accomplish that goal. So rather than Jesus being the master to whom we submit, we turn Jesus into the magic sword and we put it into the hand of the rebellious world and we say, use Jesus and his magic to get whatever it is you want to get in the first place. Instead of saying, no, 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 to follow Christ is to humble ourselves before him and to realize we need him. And so this, this wisdom, this message, like it says in verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And we're always tempted as Christians to change the message from what it really is, which is Christ crucified. But, verse 19, to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. Something sometimes happens in our lives. We wake up one day and realize we're actually not awesome. We wake up one day and realize we are messed up, sinful, broken people. And we've told ourselves, I can do whatever I want as long as it doesn't hurt others. I'm not hurting anyone. And then you wake up one day and realize, I've hurt a lot of people. You wake up one day and realize this is not the right way to live. And all of the chickens are coming home to roost in my life because of this. And, and, and you get to that moment of realizing you're a sinful, selfish person. This is what happens in the movie to Jen. She, she eventually comes increasingly face-to-face with the fact that she is a really selfish person who has used and done things to people to achieve her own ends. And, and when, when that penny finally drops in your soul and you come to that realization that you're not just this awesome person but like, wow, I'm a sinful person. Now I need a savior. Now I need the cross. And then I hear that God, who is my judge, 
loved me enough to send his own son to die in my place so that I could be forgiven and live a new life in him. And all of a sudden, the message of the cross goes from weird and foolish to the best thing I've ever heard. And suddenly I go, God did that for me? And the message of the cross becomes so beautiful. It's what I want to think about and talk about. Like, wow, God saves messed up people like me. Wow. By his power and his, for his glory. And so the message of the cross, yeah, it's foolishness to the world, but ah, it is the power of God for those who are being saved. It's the power of God for people who've tried everything else and they realize it doesn't save. Only the Messiah who was crucified and dead and buried and raised again. It's a foolish message. But God loves to take foolish things. He loves to take the stick of this message and save whom he will save. All right, let's press on. Let me just quickly show you uh, the other two. Uh, I'll move more quickly on these. But the other two ways in which the cross is foolish, the way the cross is powerless. Number one, it's a foolish message. Number two, you'll love this. It saves foolish nobody people. The cross tends to save foolish, weak, non-influential people. Verses 26 to the end of chapter 1. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I love that. Not many of you were wise. You know, Paul's like, look at Corinth. Remember, there's not a lot of influential people among you. There's a few. There's always a few, but, but not that many. Which is ironic, of course, because what were the Corinthians all fighting about? Who was better? Was Paul better? Was Apollos better? They're having this kind of arms race, seeing who could put the teachers on the higher pedestal. And so they were all about dividing over who was greater, who was greater. And Paul's like, guys, look in the mirror. You guys really aren't that great, actually. Bunch of nobodies, bunch of uninfluential people. There's a few of you, but for the most part, nobody here is really that impressive. That's who God loves to save, so that nobody can boast. Isn't that how Jesus' ministry looked? Jesus, who did he minister to? Who, 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 who were drawn to him? Primarily the poor, tax collectors, prostitutes, the outcasts, ordinary fishermen. And there were a couple hoity-toity people. There's a few. You know, Nicodemus, we know about. He was uh, a, a, a scribe. He was an expert in the law. He was a, you know, kind of a PhD type. And he had sat on the Jewish ruling council, so he was one of the elite leaders of Judaism. But, but you know, that, that wasn't the norm. That was the exception to the rule. The rule was just kind of regular people. And God loves to save regular people. Why? Verse 29, so that no one may boast before him. You know, if, if all the people God saved tended to be all the best people in the world, you might be tempted to think, well, the reason they're getting touched by God is because they're all the best people in the world. But God loves to save nobodies who really shouldn't deserve it. And it's clear they sh- I mean, no one deserves to be forgiven by God, and yet God 
you know, foolish, weak, powerless people tend to know that better than people who think they have it all together. Just how it tends to work out. And so, so God loves to save those people. You know, and I think even today, that's, that's a word to us today. You know, you look at American society, look at our culture, look at our Corinth, look where we live. There are elites who shape culture, right? Our, our culture, every society has those elite people who are the culture makers and shapers. And who are they in our society? They're the academic elites. They are people in Hollywood who make movies, who communicate messages. They're media moguls who run news services and send, you know, they're the politicians, they're athletes. The, you know, it's all these people who are kind of at that level. Every society has them, and they're the people who shape the, the culture and the values and the messaging more than anyone else, and they affect the way we think. And, and you look at those people, and, you know, uh, not necessarily a lot of Christ-crucified kind of people there. You know, when you think of Hollywood... You don't tend to think like, well, there's a hotbed of evangelical Christian faith. You know, boy, if you want to hear people on fire for Christ crucified, go to a Harvard faculty meeting. Right? If you really want to see people in love for Jesus, whatever, go to D.C., go, go to the Beltway. That's where it's all happening. You don't think that way, right? You know? So what happens then is the world says, huh, that's why Christianity is bogus. Because none of the smart, educated, successful people who've got their act together buy that stuff. It's kind of the opiate of the masses. It's kind of the crutch for the weak, unsuccessful people who can't do it. That's one way of reading the data. And Paul's saying, actually, there's another way of reading the data that's kind of disturbing, which is God is intentionally saving the nobodies so that no one may boast before him. Does God save influential people? Of course he does. God saves whoever he wants to save. So I'm not, I'm not here saying if, if you're rich or successful or well-educated, you know, you can't get to heaven, nothing like that. It's, just, it's a tendency. Paul's saying, look, this is the general way that God works so that nobody can boast, to show that God loves to save this kind of people, not the oak trees, but he loves to save these kind of people, the, the worthless twigs. Ah, and we have to be careful of this in the church. The same kind of thinking comes into our minds as Christians. Have you ever thought, moment of truth here, have you ever thought, oh, if only that actor or actress would become a Christian, then we'd see an awakening. If only that politician would get saved. If that sports hero or that musician would come to Christ, oh, the revival in America that would happen. Because now people would take the gospel seriously because so-and-so became a believer. That's worldly thinking. That is not gospel thinking. That's just us playing on the world's book. We're playing from a different rule book, which is a rule book that says God gets the glory, not people. Moment of truth. How many of us here, I say us, (laughs) how many of us here when Tebow was on the Patriots for about 20 minutes, How many of you had the little thought in your head, what if Tebow works out? What if Brady, you know, breaks his leg and Tebow's the quarterback? And what if Tebow moves to the South Shore? What if Tebow came to our church? (laughs) Oh, I could tell my friends, Tebow's at my church. And then people would stop thinking my church and my faith was stupid. 
It's worldly thinking. As if our credibility, as if the gospel's power depends upon the credentials of the people who are believing. Praise God that God saved Tim Tebow. Praise God. Praise God that God saves Fortune 500 CEOs and politicians and presidents. Praise God. But let's not think that that's where the juice is, is in the people. And God loves to save nobodies. It is his MO. And, you know, that, that's, that's the Sunday. And the, the influential people, they're just Jimmy sprinkled on top. But the, the whole thing is, is the nobodies. It's awesome what God does so that nobody can boast except in the Lord. So God gets all the glory, so that at the end of time, when, when God's glory is revealed and His salvation is on display, nobody will be able to say anything except glory to God, glory to God, glory to God, because of what He has done by accomplishing His purposes with nothing. And just one more, really quickly. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, and I'll close with this one. It's not only a foolish message. The cross is not only a foolish message. Number two, the cross not only saves foolish, insignificant people. But number three, God calls us to communicate the message in a foolish, weak, and powerless way or method. Not just a foolish message, but a foolish method. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, Paul says, When I came to you, brothers... I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I was uh, resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And so even the way Paul brought the message was cross-shaped. It's not just like a cross-shaped content, but also a cross-shaped delivery style, for lack of a better phrase. It, you know, typically in those days, the way you would, uh, if you wanted to get followers, if you wanted to sway people to your side, you would use rhetoric, and you would use oratorical flourish, and you would use philosophy, and you would wow people with your turns of phrase and wow them with your, your uh, verbal kung fu. And you would, you know, you know, use arguments and philosophy to make people think, oh, that guy's really smart. And, and so Paul's saying, I didn't do that. You kinda, I kind of think Paul might have been able to, actually, just based on his writings. He seemed really uh, a powerful thinker. I mean, he was an intellect. And yet, it's almost like Paul held back on that. He intentionally didn't use all of his, his power as a speaker because he wanted to make sure that when people believed, it was not because he had wowed them with his rhetoric, but with, verse 4, a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that people would know in Corinth who came to know Jesus, they came to Jesus because God is real and God spoke to them, not because Paul hypnotized them with his verbal witchcraft. Right? It's because, Wow. God is real. That's a message to us today. We need to make sure that we keep the power of the gospel in the gospel and, and not think that the way we're going to reach people is by adding special effects to the gospel and try to wow people with how we present the message. Um, one of the things, and you know, just to kind of, some of you know this, but, but part of my philosophy in 
preaching and our worship services and what we do together in our ministry style as a church has really been heavily impacted by these verses. You know, these verses have impacted me, and, and I want to make sure that what we do here at South Shore Baptist is kind of plain. I don't want it to be super fancy. You know, I, if, if people are, are coming to know Jesus as South Shore Baptist, I don't want it to be because of the fog machine, you know, or the, the laser light show, or the, you know, the, the, the jokes, or, you know, something like that. I mean, obviously, we, we try to do things with excellence. The music is, we, we try to be excellent. I try to do my best in preaching. But the power isn't in those kinds of things. And it's always a temptation to think, boy, how could we get people here? You know what we really need? Candles. People like a sense of awe and reverence. So let's light candles in the church. Or you know what people really like is edginess and iconoclasm. So Jeremy, get a tattoo and, you know, um, you know, come just kind of disheveled and like, ah, I'm an iconoclastic cool hipster or whatever. You know, we think like, how can we package it? How can we package it? And my, my gut instinct is that especially with millennials and younger generations, is people are so good at seeing through packaging nowadays. We're so over-advertised. I just, I think people see right through it. And they just want to know what's real. And if people come to know the Lord, I want it to be because of a demonstration of the Spirit's power. If we're going to have a revival, I don't want to be because we like whip something up with our magic. I want it to be from heaven coming down, not from the ground going up. Let it be the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that people's faith might rest in God and not in us. What an encouraging word, and I'll just close with this. What an encouraging word this is for us, not only as a church and how we kind of do ministry, but for each of you individually, because if you're a follower of Christ, God's called you to be his ambassador in the world. And for most of us, that's a pretty intimidating prospect. You know, whenever we think about us going out into the world to tell others about Jesus or to be a light in the world, most of us, I think the typical Christian feeling is inadequacy. I'm not that smart. I stick my foot in my mouth all the time. I'm going to try to talk about Jesus. I'm going to get nervous and say the wrong thing. I'm actually going to say something heretical. Uh, or, or there, you know, the person I talk to is going to happen to be a Harvard professor who's going to like boom, hit me with something that I have no, and I, you know, I'm going to lose my faith. He's going to be so smart. Um, you know, I, I, I can't, I'm not smart enough, I'm fumbling, I'm afraid, I'm weak, I'm not eloquent. Sound familiar? Paul says, I came not with eloquence, with trembling, with fear. You know, you're like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lousy evangelist. Yes, you are. And God loves lousy evangelists, right? Not lousy in the sense of, of changing the message, but lousy in the sense of, you know, we don't have, we're not slick Jesus salesmen, but just be yourself and tell the gospel. And God loves lousy evangelists because he can then get all the glory if something happens. And you can be like, I can't believe that person came to know Jesus from me. That's ridiculous. Right demonstration of the Spirit's power through you. So don't get too slick or clever. Just trust God. Even if you are slick and clever, tone it down. Tone it down. Be like Paul. Pull it back a little bit. Pull it back. Let it be God working through you so that people might come to know the real Jesus. Not only bring a crucified message, but a crucified method. 
so that all the glory might go to the Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray that you would continue to help me and to help these people to know what it means to really let the gospel and the wisdom of the gospel shape our lives. Lord, probably in more ways than we want to admit, we operate under worldly systems, worldly ways of thinking and evaluating, Lord, and we just pray that you would continue to to draw us to the weakness of Christ, the weakness of the message, the, the weakness of our brothers and sisters, the weakness of our method, Lord, and may you do great things, we pray. Lord, flex your muscles and show us your skill and awe us with your wisdom so that you might get all the glory. Lord, I pray for a great revival to come to this region, but Lord, may it come almost as a surprise to everybody. May it come not because we did some big event or some organized thing, but Lord, may it come, may it sneak up on us and surprise us so that when people ask what's happening in New England, we might just say, the power of God is happening. A demonstration of the Spirit's power is at work. Oh, Lord, we'd love to brag about you to the world. Give us reason. Show us, Lord, your power again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.